KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. in the 60s or 70s, then Hammer Films might have given you your first cinematic scare. So today, my podcast is dedicated to Hammer Horror. Come with us if you dare into a twilight world of unspeakable horror. Ah, Hammer. So begins a typical trailer for one of the Hammer Horror films. There would usually be blood-soaked title graphics and a Sirtex rating, which meant no children allowed. For almost two decades, starting in the late 1950s, you could count on the British studio for breathtakingly lurid gothic horror tales that served up vampires, werewolves, monsters, and luscious ladies. It turned Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing into icons and gave a generation of kids their first taste of terror in bold technicolor reds that practically dripped off the screen. Hammer was not always associated with horror. Founded in 1934, Hammer began by producing a small number of modest productions distributed by its company, Exclusive Films. But it wasn't until 1955, when the studio decided to adapt a popular TV show to the big screen, that it hit upon a winning formula. That film was the Quatermass Experiment. But it wasn't until 1958 that Hammer Horror discovered color. Curse of Frankenstein looked to Mary Shelley's classic novel Frankenstein, which was very attractively in public domain, and loosely adapted it to a gothic horror film shot in bold, vivid colors to emphasize the blood. The film was directed by Terence Fisher and starred Peter Cushing as Frankenstein and the towering Christopher Lee as the Doctor's creation. The film would launch the Hammer brand, a brand that held strong into the 1970s. It was followed in quick succession by Dracula, called Horror of Dracula in the U.S., with Lee as the blood-sucking count, and The Mummy, in which Lee again played the monster. After 4,000 years, the words of the scroll brought it to life again. It hates us, John. It hates us for desecrating the tomb of its princess. It will kill us. It will kill us. All of us. Oh, you mustn't upset us. Stop thinking about it. The Get Hammered film series is a year-long tribute to the best of Hammer Horror that I curated with Miguel Rodriguez of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. The series serves up what we're calling a full flight of B&B. In other words, babes and blood, the signature items of a Hammer Horror film. We'll introduce and screen classic Hammer titles every month on select Sundays at 1 p.m. at the Digital Gym Cinema. The series kicks off this Sunday with Christopher Lee in Horror of Dracula. Rodriguez and I are part of the Film Geeks at the Digital Gym Cinema, a group of volunteer programmers dedicated to bringing a diverse array of films to San Diego. Get Hammered is the perfect follow-up to our program last year called Universal Suspects that paid tribute to the black-and-white creature features of the 1930s through the 1950s. My guest today is Anthony Earnshaw, a writer, broadcaster, and film programmer with a love for horror, and hammer horror in particular. I also had a chance to speak with artist Graham Humphreys, who's done a lot of work inspired by Hammer Films. His art and his interview I did for San Diego Comic Fest are online at kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. I began my interview by asking Anthony Earnshaw how he was introduced to Hammer Horror. I came to it because my mum was 
a big Hammer Horror fan, and she would get very frightened of Christopher Lee playing Dracula. And I remember being a child, being eight years old. My dad was never interested in this stuff, but he'd watch it with my mum because she liked it. So he'd, he'd kind of suffer it, you know. But they'd hustle me off to bed, and sometimes I'd come downstairs, and maybe I, I needed a drink or I'd had a bad dream or whatever it was. And I remember coming into the living room in our house, and Dracula was on TV, and my mum was scared, and she was kind of hiding her face in my dad's armpit, which didn't do him any favors, but uh, it helped her. And I remember standing uh, at the door, watching her reaction to what was playing out on the TV screen, and thinking, oh my God, you know, eight years old, I didn't know what it was, I'd never heard of Christopher Lee. But from that day onwards, I knew what Dracula was. And I came back to it when I was in my early teens on the back of Star Wars, because the lead villain in Star Wars was Peter Cushing. And Peter Cushing was all over our TV schedules in those days because the BBC would run summertime late-night double bills, and a lot of them were Hammer. So the same guy that I liked and enjoyed and was scared by in Star Wars was in all these other movies. And suddenly there was a connection between that and the things that my mum used to watch. And so I became, a, I became a hammerhead at the age of 12 or 13 years old. So it goes all the way back. I'll be 50 this year. So we're going back a long way. And I've been a Hammer fan all that time. Since you got introduced to them on TV, I'm, I'm curious, did you see them first in color or in black and white? Color, yeah. I mean, okay. We had a color television from the early 70s. So really from me being about five, we would have a color TV. Yeah, so always in color. Because to me, Hammer just screams out color. I mean, they were, <laughs> they were always, that was such a vivid aspect of those films. Well, I think Hammer... Uh, the people behind Hammer, when they were making the movies in the late 50s, or mid-50s, when Curse of Frankenstein came out, they went with Eastman Colour, I think, in the early films, and then later Technicolor. Eastman Colour was very vivid, and it lends itself to that lurid quality that those movies have. And obviously Technicolor is vibrant and vivid and, and leaps out of the screen. So when you're looking to create a backdrop which is about blood and which is about um, swirling red capes and fangs and red eyes, there's nothing better than to have that kind of color effect. So, yeah, they do lend themselves to color very much. And if you think about the very early hammers, there's only really a handful that are in black and white. The two Quatermass movies, um, the Abominable Snowman, not many more. Really, from Curse of Frankenstein onwards, they were pretty much all made in color. Let's go back a little bit in time. Hammer was not always associated with horror films. Can you give me a little sense of where the company came from and the turning point for them when they kind of discovered that horror was going to be a way to find success? Well, Hammer began as a distribution company in the 1930s called Exclusive Films. They were pushing out very modest, rather mediocre, second-run movies. 
And when they decided to make their own films under the Hammer banner 10 years later or into the early 50s, they were often doing adaptations of popular British radio serials. So you'd have something like PC-49, PC standing for Police Constable. And it was the adventures of a a local policeman. But uh, on the wireless in the UK at that time, on the radio, families would tune in every week because it was always a cliffhanger. And Hammer realized that if people were listening to this on the radio, then they might well go and watch it in the cinema. So they started making low-budget movies. And these were very low-budget films. And geared towards a domestic audience, these weren't films that were going to travel to the States. They were made for a British audience. And Hammer did something very, very canny. They evolved the style, and they evolved the notion that if it worked on the wireless or the radio, it would work in the cinema. Well, obviously, if it worked on television... It would also work in the cinema. And what they happened upon was the Quatermass stories. And the BBC had just put out a version of the Quatermass experiment. And the story is that these things were so popular that people wouldn't leave their homes. They wouldn't go to the pub. They wouldn't go out to dinner. They wouldn't go and do anything else. They would stay in on a Saturday or Sunday evening. And they would watch the live performance, because everything was live in those days. One morning, two hours after dawn, the first manned rocket in the history of the world takes off from the Taruma Range, Australia. And there was so, they had such an impact that Hammer, the people at Hammer at the time, said, well, if people are wanting to stay at home and watch this, then surely they would go out to the cinema to watch it if it was made into a movie. And that's what they did. They made a, a film version of the Quatermass experiment. You can't escape it. Maggie, look. Nothing can destroy it. It's coming for you from space to wipe all living things from the face of the Earth. And very famously, they, they changed the spelling of the, the word experiment. They took off the E and they capitalized it so it was experiment. And that's the word that you see all over the, the posters and the advertising of the time. The fact that this was the, only the 12th film in the UK to qualify for an X certificate since the inception of the certificate a few years earlier. So they were going, they were, they were hell-bent on doing something different. They didn't have a lot of money, but they knew that they had a winner. And what they did do to make it commercial, they imported an American star. So they brought in an actor called Brian Donlevy. The Home Office stresses that there's no immediate danger. Do you realize what you'll have to face if this turns out to be a disaster, Quite a Mass? How much further? Well, 50 miles. I'm talking to you. For the last 20 miles, I've been painfully aware of that. Well, then answer, man. How did it happen? What went wrong? For the first time in the history of the world, man has sent a rocket 1,500 miles into space. You can't expect such an experiment to be perfect. Well, you must have had some idea. I'm a scientist, not a fortune teller who predicts what will happen. Well, you had instruments, radio contact. We lost it for over 57 hours, sir broke loose and we don't even know how far it's been. Had no further contact even when it returned to the orbit. Yet you brought it down by your own control. Well, that's something to tell your ministry. Quatermass set it up and he brought it back. It was very well known in the States, North America, and that allowed them to take their film abroad. So they weren't just making domestic pictures anymore for an English audience. They were making potentially international films 
for an international audience, and they cracked the American market. And Quatermass 2 followed, and another movie called X the Unknown, which starred another American actor, Dean Jagger. And suddenly they were thinking, well, what do we do next? And what they did next was they made the first British colour horror movie, and it was Frankenstein, an adaptation of Frankenstein. More than a hundred years ago, in a mountain village in Switzerland, lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. So talk about the impact that Hammer had in terms of making these color horror films and getting these X ratings, which, to clarify, an X rating... The certificate X isn't exact, isn't the same as what an X rating here in the United States would have been. Yeah, well, the the, the certification and the classification in this country is different. Yeah. Um, now the X certificate doesn't exist. It's now an 18 certificate, mm-hmm. so nobody under the age of 18 is allowed. But an X represented the same thing. It was nobody under 18. Okay. But the content might have been horrific or frightening. It wasn't sexual. It wasn't. It wasn't pornography. Mm-hmm. So there's the difference. What they managed to do, almost by accident, was recreate a genre or resurrect a genre which had pretty much been dormant for many years. A lot of people who reacted badly to Hammer films in the 1950s and even into the 1960s had grown up watching the Universal Pictures coming out of the States in the 30s and 40s. Well, in 1956, it was exactly 25 years after the Boris Karloff Frankenstein, the Bela Lugosi Dracula, you know, it was a quarter of a century. And a great deal had changed. And audience tastes had changed. And what Hammer managed to do was create something that was pretty much unfettered. In other words, they took a story which was in the public domain. There were no rights attached to it. So they took Frankenstein, which the book came out, I think, in 1819. It was long out of copyright. They very, very loosely adapted it. They took the name only, and it wasn't called Frankenstein. It was called The Curse of Frankenstein. And they made it in color, and they included within it a whole range of special effects and violence and very horrific elements. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Now you cannot possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane? Evil? Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster. And now, the monster was the master. There's a wonderful British review from the, from the period in a newspaper called The Daily Telegraph. And I'll read you a quick extrapolation from the review. Uh, the reviewer was a man called Campbell Dixon and he was reviewing The Curse of Frankenstein in May 1957. And he wrote, When the screen gives us severed heads and hands, eyeballs dropped in a wine glass and magnified, and brains dished up like spaghetti, I can only suggest a new certificate, S.O., perhaps, for sadists only. And the inference was, if you're going to the cinema to watch this kind of thing, for entertainment, then there must be something wrong with you. And if you're the kind of person that provides this kind of stuff, then obviously you're pandering to the lowest common denominator. 
and there must be something wrong with you too. So there was a huge reaction, negative reaction, from the industry, from critics, from right-minded individuals, from politicians, from the establishment in the UK. But that didn't matter because the audiences loved it. And if you flash forward another 20 years or so, people were reacting to movies like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Exorcist or Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead or later the slasher movies of the 80s. Everything is cyclical. And people forget that 30 years ago, we were reacting badly to the movies that were coming out then. 20 years before that, we were reacting to movies of that period. And 20 years before that, we were reacting to the Hammer films. So while they were breaking new ground, and while they were upsetting the establishment, this has been going on ever since horror movies have been made. So Hammer kind of fell into a groove. They accidentally created something, and then they were carried along on the wave of it. And that never stopped. I mean, Hammer was an exploitation studio, but they, had, they were a wannabe mainstream studio. They all, Michael Carreras, who took over Hammer from his father in 1969 or 70, used to say to people, I want to make better films. And some of his collaborators said, well, the films that we're making are making money. They're successful. They're not costing very much. People like them. We have an audience. Why do you want to mess with the formula? So he had aspirations to do other things. But back in the, the mid-1950s and into the early 1960s, they just wanted to make successful films on a budget that people would go to. And that's what they did. The kind of criticism that these films were getting and the X ratings, that must have added appeal, especially to pe- I mean, because part of what attracts young people to horror is that it does feel kind of forbidden and like you're not supposed to go there. And I'm wondering if that just built up the appeal for young kids. And, and were young kids like sneaking into these movies or was it just something that they eventually got to when they got old enough? I think young kids have been sneaking into movies as long as young kids have known that there was something dodgy about the film that's playing in their local cinema. I've interviewed people who are now very well known in the industry and they'll tell stories about being 10 years old and paying somebody to go into a cinema and then they'll open a fire door in an alleyway outside and they'll let all their friends in. They'll be hiding upstairs in the circle. This is when British cinemas had a stall and a circle and a, an upper circle, and they were very, very big cinemas. They would hide themselves away, and these kids would be 10 or 12 or 13 years old watching an ex-certificate movie, which was geared to adults. But they'd love it, and then having done it once, they'd try and do it again. And there have been stories of kids sneaking into movies and watching it two and three and four times in a day. They just managed to stay in the cinema. They hide away from the people that are running the cinema and they watch the movie over and over. You might say to somebody, but the movie that you watched really wasn't very good. And they said, yeah, but it was illegal. (laughs) We shouldn't have been in there. And I saw it four times in a day. I've never forgotten it. And you can ask people what they think, what are the best films that they've enjoyed in their lives or the most quality experience. And quite often they'll say, you know what, my favorite movie of all time is the Gorgon from Hammer. 
For 2,000 years, Megera the Gorgon had kept her evil peace. But now this strange, unearthly creature returns to petrify every human being who crosses her path. Martin Scorsese is a huge Hammer Horror fan. Huge. If you were to pin Scorsese down and ask him for his favorite movies, he tends to name about 100 of them rather than about 10. But you can bet your bottom dollar there will be a Hammer Horror film in there. What do you think it is about these films that does grab people so strongly? And, you know, you ask people who love Hammer Horror, and almost everybody has some vivid childhood memory of of one of the films. I I talked to one person, and he remembers just the lobby cards from the film, like, terrifying him. Well, we're we're talking about a time. I've never experienced the American drive-in, for instance. I would have loved to have lived through that. The outdoor cinema experience is pretty much gone. It, it, it exists in my memory, even though I never experienced it. And what you're talking about in the UK is a similar vibe. Small cinemas, often two or three or four in an average town, sometimes privately run, independent, sometimes part of a big chain. But the people running them knew that they had to market and promote these movies in a very specific way, to a very specific audience. And the audience would primarily be, be younger, so you're talking teenagers, people in their early 20s, maybe 30s. You weren't going to get many older uh, customers coming to watch a Hammer movie because it just wasn't their bag. So what would they do? They'd use all of the exploitation publicity that they could get their hands on. So they might have a banner outside the cinema featuring Dracula, bending over the neck of a beautiful maiden, or you might have Van Helsing with his cross, or whichever monster was in the movie. It might be the Gorgon, or it might be the zombies from Plague of the Zombies. Dead. But no corpse can remain at peace in this village of the undead, this land of the zombies. In this place, no one is safe. No one can hide from witchcraft, superstition, and fear. And the the posters would be very lurid. The poster art was very specific for a Hammer Horror film. And the lobby cards inside, we we used to call them front-of-house stills. They're slightly smaller over here. In the States, they're rather bigger. But the lobby cards were all parts of that. So you would come in, and sometimes the production companies were very canny and very clever. They would put something on a lobby card that wasn't actually in the movie. So maybe it was a scene that had been cut uh, on the orders of the censor, or maybe it was just a scene that was too long and they chopped it, but they left it on the lobby card. So you come in with your, your, your boyfriend or your husband or whatever, and you're thinking, oh, wow, look at this. And then it's not in the film. Or it's advertising a film that's coming to the cinema, and you see something pictured on that lobby card, and you think, oh, my God, I must see this movie. And in a week or two weeks' time or a month's time, you go watch the movie, and maybe that sequence is not in at all. Or maybe it is. Maybe it's the key sequence of the film. So all of this stuff, the, the marketing campaigns in the 1950s and 1960s were very, very clever. And it was all geared towards drawing you in, giving you something that you recognized. So, so Hammer, within a very short space of time, Hammer had become a brand. Hammer represented gothic British horror. And yet the gothicness of it, it was set in Europe. 
it was set in a Europe that Hammer had created, because the Europe represented in those early Hammer films isn't realistic historical Europe. It's a Europe created by Hammer's scriptwriters and inhabited by characters that they created. So you could slip into a Hammer movie. It might be a Dracula film. It might be a Frankenstein film. But it bore very little resemblance to the books with those names that might be, in, might be on your shelf in your bedroom or in the local library. So Hammer were breaking new ground. They were driving forward with their own interpretation of classic horror. So people were buying into that in a big way. And later in the 1960s, there were other companies coming through, like Amicus and like Tygon. And into the 1970s, there was another company called Tyburn. And they were all trying to mimic what Hammer were doing. And there was enough room for them to do that. But nobody ever did it quite as well as Hammer. They initiated that strand, that run of movies. And they had the team and the repertory of actors to do it. Now, most horror films are not overtly political or presenting social commentary. But did the Hammer films for British audiences, was there some level of social commentary or was it bringing up any issues or ideas that were not overtly being dealt with, but that kind of, was it reacting against some sort of conservatism or repression or anything? Did it have any kind of aspect of that to it? Well, they were certainly going up against the establishment because the British Board of Film Censorship, as it was then, the BBFC, was run by and on behalf of the British establishment. So the censor in the UK was working on behalf of the government. The industry at the time was self-regulating. So if you produced a movie, if I was the censor and you produced a movie that came across my desk and I didn't like the look of it, I could uh, suggest that you might want to tone it down or change it. And Hammer started doing something very clever. They would send a script, a copy of the script, the BBFC around a month before the start of production and they would allow their script to be taken apart by the various examiners or readers at the BBFC. Some of these readers commented on Hammer's scripts and they called them uncouth, uneducated, disgusting, vulgar and they would say that too much blood was unpalatable if there was too much stake work as in a vampire being staked. They would say that's prohibitive, you know, we don't want to do too much of that, thank you very much. So people who were writing scripts for Hammer would put things into the script that they knew the censor wouldn't allow. So the censor would react and say, no, you can't have that sequence involving a person being decapitated, you must remove it. So the Hammer would say, oh, of course, of course, you know, we, we don't want to cause offence. But instead of uh, having the head chopped off, could we have uh, the throat being slashed? And the censor would say, well, all right, yes, that's, that's better. Well, that's what they wanted all along. So they were playing a game with the censor and, by association, playing a game with the establishment. Are they overtly political? It depends upon your point of view. Frankenstein, played by Peter Cushing, is pretty much running wild. He's free to do exactly what he wants. We've only just started. Just opened the door. But now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself, and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. 
the upper class. He preys on the lower classes. You could say that that's been going on in this country for 200 years, that the upper classes look down on the, the middle and the working classes and trample them underfoot. Maybe that plays a part in some of Hammer's movies. Dracula is an aristocrat. And what does he do? He sucks the blood of other people. You could say that the aristocrats of Britain have been feeding on the blood of better men for hundreds of years. So there are lots of interpretations that you can put to a Hammer movie. And better people than me have deconstructed and reconstructed them to, to drive home a political point. So I'm sure there's a great deal to be said about them. It might take a much longer interview than, than the one <laughs> we're doing today. You've worked as a film programmer and put together programs of Hammer Horror films. What is it about these films that gives them their lasting appeal? And, and what kind of reactions do you get now screening them 10, 20, 30 years after they initially came out? Are they still as popular with people? Um, they are still popular. Not all of them. I would say that there are maybe a dozen Hammer movies that really stand the test of time. But you're not talking 10, 20, 30 years ago. You're talking 50 and 60 years ago. Yeah, now. <laughs> you know, yes. the, last, the last true Hammer movie, I'm not talking about The Woman in Black with Daniel Radcliffe. I'm talking about To the Devil a Daughter. Mm-hmm. came out in 1976 or 77. So that's the best part of 40 years ago. They only had, really, 20 years of production. So I, I, I start them from the color movies. So Curse of Frankenstein was 1956. Obviously, the Quatermass movies were slightly before that. Um, and they ground to a halt uh, in 1976-77, in terms of movie making. So they only had 20 years, really. And in that time, there must be 50, 60 movies, maybe more. I don't know how, exactly how many. But only about a dozen were real quality. Now, when you um, unearth those movies and bring them to a big screen rather than a television screen, I don't care how big your home cinema is, it's never going to match a cinema screen. And people sometimes say to me, I've got this new den, I've got this big screen TV, and I watch all my Blu-rays there. And I say, great, good, I'm pleased. But I still prefer to watch my movies on a movie screen, a big one, in a cinema. And when you present these films to modern audiences, and they may have seen them before, and they may be familiar with them, and they may know the dialogue, they can repeat the dialogue scene by scene. Show them these movies on a big screen, and it's an entirely different experience, especially when you're talking about the color. And if the film's been restored, and maybe it's in a new print, maybe a 35 mil print, but it may be on a DCP, digital, they look magnificent. And sometimes you get people coming out of these screenings who are old enough to have seen the movies the first time around. So if they were 18 in 1956, that means they were born in 1938. So you're talking about older men. But they'll come out of these screenings and they'll say, wow, I never believed it could look so good. And some of them are absolutely timeless. 
the original Dracula, or I think it's Horror of Dracula in the US, that movie hasn't dated. It hasn't dated because it's set in, you know, 1890 or something. So it's, it, it's not set in the modern era. There are no cars that can date the movie. It's set a long time ago. And it's set in an artificial sense of Europe, as I say, that never really existed. It only existed within the Hammer Horror universe. So people watch these movies, and if they're watching them for the first time, what you get from them is this sense of, wow, the effects are tremendous, the acting's great, the interplay between the characters. Isn't Christopher Lee sexy? Isn't he a sexy <laughs> vampire? Um, Peter Cushing, uh, who was always my favorite when I was a kid, Peter Cushing is a very athletic man of action, which is in stark contrast to Edward Van Sloan when he was playing it in the Universal films opposite Bela Lugosi. They're different eras, different actors, uh, different backdrops. Everything is different. And the, the really good hammer horrors, the ones that are well-written, well-acted, well-directed, the production design is lush. The, the cinematography is mouth-watering. The music is great. When all of those things come together, then Hammer, as a form, is an exemplar of what a horror movie should be. Well, you mentioned seeing it on a big screen in the cinema, but the other aspect of it besides just the visual quality of it is that communal experience that you have. Watching a horror film with a group of other people is always more fun than watching at home where you might pause it and get up or get distracted by something. And it seems like that really makes it special as well. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with you in every way. There's also this idea of, you use the word communal, this kind of shared experience of, of being frightened. I was being interviewed by somebody last year, and they said, you know, what makes a good horror movie? And I said, horror. <laughs> you know, if a movie's a horror movie, it should frighten you. If a movie's a good comedy, it should make you laugh. If it's a good romance, it should make you want to kiss the person next to you. Hopefully it's not a perfect stranger, but you get my drift. Yes. <laughs> um, a good Western, you know, we, we know what the Western genre is. It's the good guys against the bad guys. It's the guy in the white hat versus the guy in the black hat. And it should have that level of adventure to it. A, a, a good thriller. It, it should make you grip the size of your chair. It should have you, your eyeballs burning out of your head because you're so hyped up by what you're seeing on screen. Movies, are, that's what watching a movie should be about. And the Hammer films did that perfectly. The good ones it perfectly. But even a bad hammer horror, um, in many ways, is better than some of the other stuff that was coming out at the time. Because hammer had, they had a formula and they worked to that formula and very rarely, I mean, they did deviate, but very rarely did they deviate. They stuck to what they knew. It was only later when movies changed and the whole era became more permissive that hammer went down a different route and it was the lesbian vampire's and they made a handful of those films. Didn't quite work. And by then, movies had changed anyway. On the back of Rosemary's Baby and Night of the Living Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, everything had changed, and Hammer had to change as well. 
If you had to pick three Hammer horror films to put into a time capsule to save forever, which would be your three favorite? I knew you were going to ask me that. (laughs) And it's a murderous question. I know, I'm sorry. It's a good job that we're 6,000 miles apart, because I'd probably have to strangle you. (laughs) What would I choose? Well, to be honest, Beth, it changes day by day. Um, It depends on my mood. Um, It depends whether I'm in a Peter Cushing frame of mind or a a Christopher Lee frame of mind. Horror of Dracula, I think, is a D classic. I think it stands above all of the other films that they made. I love The Mummy, which came out the year after. The Mummy, the living dead, bringing terror and death across 4,000 years. He was a high priest of the great god Karnak until one night... He attempted the ultimate in blasphemy. But I also like one of the the later Frankensteins, uh, a movie called Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed. I can transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed which I think is, in many ways, the most realistic and the most brutal of the Frankensteins. I think that the Peter Cushing's characterization of Frankenstein evolved in a more true fashion than Christopher Lee's Dracula. Christopher Lee's Dracula, one movie, he didn't even say a word. He was so appalled at the script that he refused to say the script, allegedly. So he was mute throughout the movie. Whereas Peter Cushing as Frankenstein was allowed to evolve the character and you, you followed his adventures or his misadventures through all the various movies. But if you go all the way back to 1956, um, The Curse of Frankenstein, over the course of about four or five years, there was one classic film after another. So you have Curse of Frankenstein, you have Horror of Dracula, You have The Hound of the Baskervilles, The Mummy, The Revenge of Frankenstein, Brides of Dracula, and also in there you've got The Abominable Snowman, which is one of the films in black and white, which hasn't held up as well, and some of the effects aren't as good. But all of the other films that I just mentioned are just tremendous and all turned down within about five years. So I'd be hard-pressed to choose... I would want to choose from that run of movies rather than look further forward into the 60s or 70s. Although I have to say one of my guilty pleasures is a movie called The Satanic Rites of Dracula, which was a modern uh, dress Dracula set in the 1970s. It's happening right now in London. New York could be next. Or Paris, or Rome, or Tokyo. It's happening right now to this girl. Perhaps it's your turn next. And uh, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he hates it. He can't stand it. And he's saying to me, you know, what are you thinking? How can you choose this film? He said, it doesn't work, it doesn't fit. Nothing about it is, is real. And I said, look, it's one of these things that I remember from being a child, from being a teenager. It had an effect on me, and I enjoy it. 
So I'm not going to apologize for it. <laughs> it's just something that I like and you don't. But every Hammer fan would give you three different movies, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. One of my favorites is Curse of the Werewolf because I'm a huge Oliver Reed fan. Oh, well, good for you. Me too. The Curse of the Werewolf that was laid on a baby who grew into a man possessed by a monster. To this Spanish town, the night brought drinking and dancing, music and girls, and the moon. The full moon that turned an innocent man into a savage beast. The Curse of the Werewolf. Curse of the Werewolf was a tremendously difficult and troubled film, uh, especially with the UK censor. The sequence in the dungeon with the, uh, the girl and the beggar, caused Hammer immense problems because they thought they could show one script to the censor and then shoot a different version that the censor wouldn't realize, but the censor did realize, and then said to them, you can't include that sequence in the film. Well, Hammer hadn't shot an alternative, so to take it out would have ruined their movie. So they had to do some fancy footwork with the censor and to try and get the sequence included in the film, even if it was somewhat diluted. But there were immense problems with that film. And yet many people would say, as you would, that it's one of the best that Hammer made. It's not, I, I enjoy it, and I recognize its quality, but for me, it doesn't match the ones that I, that I mentioned to you earlier. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with you, and it's very difficult to pick which is a favorite. And it all depends on what mood I'm in when I happen to sit down to <laughs> to watch something. And also, who are you with? If you're talking about going to watch a movie with your friends, that can determine how you react or what you watch. If, if there are three movies on that night, do you choose um, Twins of Evil? Do you choose Evil of Frankenstein? Or do you choose, I don't know, um, Plague of the Zombies? You know, it's, it's a hard choice. I want to talk about one of the people behind the scenes, Roy Ashton, who did the makeup effects on the films. What kind of an impact did he have in terms of helping to make these films so memorable? Because he did some great work on a lot of these movies. He had an enormous impact. But he would tell you, I interviewed Roy many years ago, and he would tell you that like many people working on those movies, their success, and their triumph was down to expediency because they were given a script and they said, the, the producer said, right, in this sequence, the Phantom of the Opera tears off his mask and presents his scarred face to the heroine. So um, you need to make us a mask. And it needs to be something that he can just remove with one hand so he can't fasten it. It just needs to fit onto his face. So Roy went away, and he came up with something. But it couldn't be similar to the mask that Lon Chaney wore in the Universal Phantom of the Opera, because Universal had the copyright on that, and Universal would sue if, they, if it was perceived that Hammer was copying them or stealing their ideas. So he had to come up with something else. So he made the mask that Herbert Lom wears in Phantom of the Opera from papier-mâché. It was a very, very cheap effect. He probably made it over an evening and let it dry and then painted it the following day and took it into the studio and said, how about this? 
And they say, great, wonderful, oh, wow, what a tremendous job. And he's thinking, yeah, that's, that's my newspaper. I cut it, I, mold, I wet it, I molded it to my face, and suddenly here's a, here's a mask. A lot of what they did was down to lack of money and lack of budgets. They had to be inventive. They had to think outside the box. That's a phrase that I completely hate, but you can understand where they were coming from with it. If you are given a budget, a big budget, you will spend it. And quite often you see movies today where they throw everything at the screen to try and impress you and I. When in actual fact, if they used a bit of imagination and if they used inventiveness rather than money, they would succeed more. And Roy Ashton and another um, makeup designer called Phil Leakey, they were the people who designed the monsters, the Frankenstein monsters. And in the first Frankenstein, The Curse of Frankenstein, people said that Christopher Lee looked like a road accident. He was this patchwork thing. Whereas in the universal Boris Karloff Frankenstein picture from 1931, you had the flat head and you had the stitches and you had the bolts through the neck. They couldn't do any of that. They weren't allowed because of copyright. But also they didn't have the budget to create that. They didn't have a huge makeup studio. So someone like Roy Ashton is as crucial to the success of Hammer as Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing or Terence Fisher or James Bernard, James Bernard, uh, any of those guys. But what they did, they did because there was no money on the table. These films were very, very cheaply made, and these guys had to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. That was their job, and they did it. I had read that one of the trivia things I had read that I loved was that Roy Ashton and Christopher Lee would sing opera while he was putting on makeup. I've heard this, yeah. Well, Christopher certainly was a, a trained opera singer. Um, Roy, when he retired from makeup, um, would often perform in, in local productions. Now, um, just how often or how loudly they sang... <laughs> I couldn't tell you, but it's certainly become part of the Hammer myth. There's an actress called Barbara Shelley mm -hmm. who worked with Christopher Lee um, on Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And um, she was being made up in one room, and further down the corridor, Christopher Lee was being made up, and he would sing. And they used to open the doors and listen to his voice kind of reverberate and echo down this corridor. Christopher didn't need a microphone. His voice was strong enough that he could fill the studio with it. So she certainly uh, told that story as well. We just we're talking about Christopher Lee. What what did actors like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and Ingrid Pitt bring to Hammer in terms of helping to define that brand and helping to make them popular? Well, Peter Cushing was the first true television star that Britain had ever had. He was a huge, huge draw on television. Um, there were only a handful of channels in, in the UK at the time. That there weren't, you know, dozens like there are now. So if he was on television, and he wasn't in Quatermass, but he was in lots of other television plays, perhaps the most notorious was 1984. Uh, and he won a bunch of awards for that. There were 
newspaper headlines the next day saying that this is too brutal for TV and the repeat performance should be banned, etc., etc. Peter got a great deal out of that. And his capability and versatility as an actor, along with the fact that he was a very famous TV face, were one of the reasons that Hammer wanted to work with him. So he brought all of that discipline um, and a, a sense of being serious to those roles. Peter Cushing never played his horror for jokes. He never sent it up. He wasn't winking at the audience while he was carving a hole in somebody's head. He played it straight. He, he used to say, I play uh, horror like I'm playing Hamlet. And, he, you know, you have to do it seriously, otherwise people see through it. So that's what he brought to it. Christopher Lee, as you probably know, was a very tall man. He was mm -hmm. about six feet four, six feet four and a half. The legend about Christopher is that he wasn't being cast in traditional leading man roles because he was perceived to be too tall and too foreign looking. So he was often cast in support. Uh, he was cast as villains. And he was cast as the monster because he was tall. But he didn't have any lines. So a great deal of his performance as the creature in Curse of Frankenstein was down to mime. In essence, he was miming. And he was using his eyes and he was using his body and his hands to bring across the ferocity of this creature, but also its vulnerability, its loneliness. And the same thing comes across in The Mummy where he, he picks up the girl and he's looking at the girl with longing and sadness and devotion. And when he attacks, the camera zooms in on his eyes and you see the rage in his eyes. He's been locked up for 2,000 years. He's attacking the bad guys who are daring to defile the princess. He's not using his voice. He's using his body. He's using his face or what you can see of it under the bandages. That's what he brought to it. But he also brought immense grace to something like Dracula. And Martin Scorsese was interviewed in a documentary over here many years ago now. And he says, the first time you see Dracula in the movie, he stands at the top of a flight of stairs, he walks down the stairs, he shakes hands with his visitor, and he says, I am Dracula, and I welcome you to my house. So he's not a snarling vampire, or rather he's not just a snarling vampire. That comes later. He's a gentleman. He's an aristocrat. He's a warrior. He's a lover. He's an immortal. And something else that Christopher Lee said, he said this in several interviews, and he said it to me. He said, what a ghastly fate to be immortal. Dracula has been alive for hundreds of years. What is he looking for? He's looking for a mate. He's looking for a companion. He's also mad, he's insane, but he's also a gentleman. And all of those things come to play in his characterization of Dracula. And in many of the other films that he plays in too, another film that people talk about is The Devil Rides Out. And it was a favorite of Christopher Lee because he believed in all of that. He was a great student of the occult. And he said that in many ways... Devil Rides Out is a very dangerous film. So he brings more than just acting to it. He brings veracity. 
He brings authenticity. There's not, nothing artificial about Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing. Ingrid Pitt brought Hammer into the 1970s. She kind of brought the, the style of Hammer into a new era because just as Christopher Lee was a sexy vampire, well, so was Ingrid Pitt. And whatever Christopher Lee did for the guys, or for the girls, rather, Ingrid Pitt did for the guys. She was statuesque. She had a tremendous body. She was lush. Um, her legs, her hair, her lips, her breasts, perfect. And she wasn't shy. So when Hammer wanted a buxom vampire to strip on screen, well, she had to look good. And Ingrid Pitt looked good. I don't think she was the best actor in the world, but quite often, let's be honest, if you're a guy going to these movies, you're not going to be looking at your lady vampire for her acting skills. You're going to be looking at her other attributes. And Ingrid Pitt brought all of that to the screen. And she would have said that herself. She's, she's gone now. But she said that herself. She said, you know, I, they wanted me for my sex appeal. And she brought sex appeal. The two things that you that seem to spring to mind immediately when somebody mentions Hammer always seems to be like blood and babes. Yeah. Along um, with Christopher Lee. But. Well, Christopher had his fair share of babes as well. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, there's enough production shots out there and publicity pictures showing Christopher Lee surrounded by scantily clad buxom babes with diaphanous gowns and acres of decolletage. I mean, that was Hammer. Yes, I think they, they chose their stars very carefully but they also chose their leading ladies very carefully. And quite a few of them have passed into modern myth because of the way they looked and the way they were willing to behave on screen. I mean, Twins of Evil is a perfect example. They look alike. They dress alike. Two identical beauties. But one of them has the very devil in her. For you, all pleasures should be supreme. It's a lesbian vampire movie, and they wanted a gimmick. And the gimmick was that the two girls in the film were identical twins. So one would be the good twin, and one would be the bad twin. And you would see them strip, so they would, they would bear their bodies for the camera. But the fly in the ointment was that only one of the girls would agree to strip. So whenever they wanted to try and get them both together on screen, wearing not very much, they couldn't because only one of them was prepared to take her clothes off. So sometimes it didn't always go to plan. Now, we've just talked about some of these very attractive young women who helped build the Hammer brand. But another thing that they did was they gave some older actresses a chance to shine in a slightly different kind of horror film in films like The Nanny and Die, Die, My Darling. Yeah. Well, who can forget Betty Davis? Uh, yeah. Now, Betty Davis was probably the biggest female Hollywood star of the 1940s. Late 30s into the 40s, Betty Davis, Katie Hepburn, Joan Crawford, there were a few more, but Davis was the one that could really act them off the screen. By the mid-1950s, she wasn't being hired very much anymore. And she famously put an advert in one of the trade magazines that said something
something like actress in her 50s looks for regular employment. And she's making movies over here, making thrillers. I live in Yorkshire. She made a movie in Yorkshire. I didn't know about this until a few years ago, but she did. So she was pretty ubiquitous. By the 60s, the roles weren't there anymore. And on the back of whatever happened to Baby Jane, Hammer suddenly realized that this grand dame of the screen was available to do exactly the kind of films that they'd been producing. And so we got to The Nanny. Betty Davis as The Nanny adds another magnificent performance to her unequaled record of outstanding portrayals. Nanny had been in the family for years. Then, mysteriously, two are dead. Two live on in constant terror. If ever the characterization was geared towards scaring the bejesus out of children, it's Betty Davis as the nanny. Because we all know that a nanny is someone to be trusted, along with doctors and policemen and teachers and things like that. Well, this nanny isn't to be trusted at all. What happened in the bathroom, nanny? I'm sure I don't know what you mean. What happened? Miss Penn, go back to bed and I'll bring you your tea. What happened? And there are moments in that film that will chill the blood as effectively as any vampire or werewolf or Frankenstein creation or zombie or whatever else Hammer came up with, the Gorgon. I put my hat in the ring and say that the nanny is arguably the most scary creation that Hammer ever came up with. And that it's all down to Betty Davis mm. and her cackle. She does a good cackle. <laughs> yes, she does. Of the directors who worked at Hammer, which ones stand out for you? Well, most of those early titles that I was talking about uh, were by Terence Fisher. Mm. Terence Fisher had been around a long time. Uh, he'd been an editor, I believe, uh, prior to becoming a director. So he knew his way around the cutting room and he knew his way around the studio. In the last few years, the last sort of 25, 30 years, people have been rather down on Terence Fisher. They've referred to him as, in inverted commas, a pedestrian director, which seems to me to signify that he lacks energy or drive. He lacks dynamism. So he doesn't have that kind of fizz to him, which I think is rubbish. You look at those early movies, and he, as much as anybody else, is creating something entirely new. Of course we have Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee. Of course we have Jimmy Sangster, the, the writer. And of course we have James Bernard with his music and Bernard Robinson, the production designer, etc., etc., Roy Ashton. But when it comes down to it, there is one man on the studio floor who's calling the shots. He's directing. He's directing everything that you see and that's Terence Fisher. And I think that he is the pretty much the secret weapon. If a director can be a secret weapon, it sounds like a nonsense, doesn't it? But if a director can be a secret weapon, then I think he is Hammer's secret weapon. And a great many of my favorite Hammer movies were directed by him. I also like uh, Roy Ward Baker. And Roy came through, he made movies in Hollywood, made a movie with Marilyn Monroe, 
and made a bunch of films over here in the UK, including a movie about the Titanic, um, war movies, and all sorts of things. He was a very versatile director. And Roy ended up doing several films for Hammer. He made Quatermass and the Pit, which I think is one of the very best sci-fi movies ever made. And he also directed The Vampire Lovers. The Vampire Lovers. Perverted creatures of the night find their victims everywhere. Which was an adaptation of an Irish ghost story, which Hammer ramped up and made a, a, a lesbian vampire film. And again, the censor knew what Hammer were playing at. But Hammer could quite rightly turn around and say, look, it's all in the story. And Roy had that delicate touch. He was able to encompass and incorporate all of the, uh, the underlying elements of lesbianism in the story. And he brought it to the fore, but without being too labored about it. So he straddled both camps. He straddled the classic and the, the exploitative. Now, I think he's, along with Terence Fisher, I think he's the key, the other key director uh, working within the Hammer stable. So what do you see as the legacy that Hammer has left behind? And is their influence still being felt today? Well, we're talking about it. Yes, we yeah. are. <laughs> um, 60 years on from The Curse of Frankenstein, you've put together from the list that you sent me, a tremendously varied and um, very imaginative season of films. You wouldn't be doing that if there wasn't an audience out there to watch them. And it's a proselytizing thing as well. You clearly see a value in these movies and you want other people to see them or to experience them for the first time or to watch them anew and to remember how they felt when they first saw them. Because there is something unique about Hammer. It, it is about what I said to you earlier, about creating this world of their own, this unique landscape inhabited by peasants who mutter when the coach goes by and, uh, you shouldn't travel that road, sir. You know, keep away from the castle on the hill. You know, every town should have a haunted house. And in the Hammer landscape, the haunted house is Dracula's castle up, up there on the hill. And everyone knows that he's there, but nobody ever talks about it until some stupid Englishman with his wife decides to call at the nearby inn or they, they lose a, a wheel off their carriage and they have to hitch a ride and they're picked up by, you know, some phantom carriage that takes them to Dracula's castle. This is the landscape that Hammer created, and it's still as relevant now in terms of scaring people or intimidating people or making them want to know more. That's what Hammer did so well. And it, the influences are everywhere. I mentioned Scorsese earlier. Martin Scorsese is a huge Hammer buff. And if you look closely in some of his movies, you will see him borrowing shots, angles, the way somebody walks into a room, the way somebody stands at the top of the stairs and he's lit from behind or she's lit from behind. He's borrowed it from a hammer film. So instead of looking at Christopher Lee, you're looking at Robert De Niro. Instead of looking at Peter Cushing, you're looking at, I don't know, Harvey Keitel. 
they're, they're all at it. And some filmmakers will not admit to being influenced by Hammer, but others do. And there is a freshness to some of the Hammer product that even after 50 or 60 years, you can show some of these films to modern audiences, to kids. And if they've grown up on Tarantino or Peter Jackson or Christopher Nolan, sure, the Hammer movies look a bit clunky. Maybe the special effects aren't very good. And the bat that's trying to bite the lady is, is obviously a rubber bat, and you can see the strings. But it doesn't matter. What matters is the vibe. And what matters is that if you get yourself in the right frame of mind, these movies can transport you to another world and to another age. And nearly all of the actors are gone now. Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee died last year at the age of 93. But they represent something. Um, the style of acting has changed now. The style of movie making has changed. The backdrops of the movies, you know, they were all on... There were matte paintings and small models. and Everything was made out of what was there to be found in the, in the laboratory or in the studio. Nowadays, movies are overwhelmed by budget. Hammer didn't have that. So what you're looking at is a triumph of the imagination in one film after another after another. Has the industry changed so much that we will never see another kind of hammer brand again. I mean, we don't really have studio systems the same way we did. Do you I know you were we talked about how horror kind of comes in these waves and these cycles, but do you think that we'll ever see like another brand like this where it's coming from one place and and creating such a strong impact from a single source? I think the issue is there's a huge gulf between budgets you can, and it's the same in, in the UK as it is in the States, I'm sure. You can maybe make a movie in the States for a couple of million dollars, or you can make a movie for a couple of hundred million dollars. But there's nothing in between. And Hammer were making viable movies for two or three hundred thousand pounds, which in American currency would be, say, half a million dollars then. And they could do six or ten of these movies a year. So if you're talking six or ten movies at half a million dollars each, you're talking about a complete budget, a total budget of five million dollars, which is nothing. But nobody is able to make movies for that cost anymore. It costs too much. So if you aspire to create something, you have to have the budget to match it. But nobody's funding movies for, say... $20 million. They'll give you the money for a $2 million film, or you can raise money through the studios for a 100 or $150 million film. But in between, there's this gray area. And that's where Hammer thrived. They thrived on making low-budget films, quality low-budget films. And they would strike a deal with Warner Brothers or with Columbia or with American International, and they would pre-sell their films in advance knowing that they'd made their money before a single foot of film was shot. That's not happening anymore. So the industry has changed so dramatically. And also, in San Diego, for instance, your average multiplex 
will be playing the same 10 or 15 movies as the next multiplex, 30 miles up the freeway. So there's very little independent programming going on anymore, and there's very little opportunity for these smaller independent low-budget movies to come onto the circuit. And when you have that against you, then it's pretty much pointless making the movie in the first place because no one's going to play it. And if no one's going to play it, an audience is not going to see it, and you won't make your money back, no matter how much you've spent or how little you've spent. So it would be very difficult for a company today to replicate what Hammer did in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s. I mean, even in the 1970s, the UK film industry was, was drying up and there was very little, little opportunity for any company to make any impact. Uh, and Hammer found it very difficult. But in the 50s and 60s, it was a boom time and the films were going all over the world. If you look at the modern Hammer production company now, how many films have they released? Six. Just a handful. Yeah. And one of them was an enormous success, but that was only one. And they've made a sequel, which wasn't very good. The other movies have not had the same impact. So it's hard. And Hammer, the original Hammer, would turn out ten movies a year, and maybe three of them would be hits. That was sufficient. That would lead to them producing another 10 and another 10. But as I said to you earlier, out of the 50 or 60 or whatever movies that they made, there's only really a dozen that stand the test of time. And they made a lot of rubbish. But the cream that did rise to the top is, is great. Absolutely. And a lot of them are on your list. Yes. I'm so looking forward to seeing these on a big screen because some of them I have not seen on a big screen at all. So it's kind of a selfish program, I guess. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but that's the trick of being a programmer. I, I, I said this to some students the other week, and they said, when you program a movie or program a season, are you trying to look into the heads of the people that are coming to see those movies? And I said, no. And they said, well, who do you program for? And I said, I program for me and I hope that you like it. Because programming is not an art, and it's not a science. It's neither of those things. The only way I can describe it to anybody is trying to catch lightning in a bottle. I don't know you. I know your name, and you live in the States. You live in you know, a lovely part of the world, but I know nothing about you. But I know enough about your love of movies from the list that you sent me Mm-hmm. to know that we get on. We have something in common. And that's all that you can do. You, you choose the movies because you like them, and it's the strength of your program that will see you succeed or fail as a programmer. And you have to stick with it, and you have to stick to your guns with what you like and what you don't like. Well, we mentioned earlier this sense of communal experience and the sense of community. And for me, it's all about that joy you get from taking something you love and feel passionate about and exposing it to someone else or sharing it with someone who already loves it. And it just feels so good to watch films in that kind of an environment. I, I agree. Absolutely. And it's a highly interpretive thing. Do you introduce your movies before they play? 
Yes. We yeah. introduce them and then we usually have time after the film where we have a really nice lobby at the, we have a little micro cinema called the Digital Gym Cinema. And so there's a nice lobby space and sometimes we have food and I do desserts themed to the movies. So I'll have, you know, chocolate vampire fangs or chocolate brains that you can cut open and they'll bleed and things like that that we can, <laughs> we can nibble on after the film and chat about the movie. But that is perfect. And when I used to, and I still do it now, whenever I run a festival, we try and introduce every movie. Mm-hmm. And we, we have different people introducing. They might be programmers. They might be members of the cast or crew. It might be a director who's there. Or it might just be another, it might be an academic or an author. And when you introduce a movie, you should bring to it your own take on the film it should be the movie as you see it and you bring to it your passion and your enthusiasm and what i hope is something that will transport to the audience that they will be as excited about that movie as you are and you've seen it before obviously Mm -hmm. but they may never have seen it before and through your introduction and your enthusiasm for the subject they're going to think wow i can't wait for this movie to start you know, I, I love what they, read, what they wrote in the production notes, in the brochure, or online. It sounds like a really great movie. I can't wait for it. And what this guy's just said, oh, wow, I can't wait for this movie. It's all about selling. It's all about showmanship. And that's what Hammer did all those years ago. Mm-hmm. With their posters and their lobby cards and everything else, they promoted the hell out of their films, and they made people want to watch them. And you're doing exactly the same thing. Well, I want to thank you very much for speaking with me. Yes, I do believe, even though I've never met you in person, that after talking about movies for a little bit, I know that we would get along and could (laughs) spend a long time just chatting about films. Well, listen, I like the idea of chocolate brains that bleed. (laughs) You've sold it to me. (laughs) If I could figure out a way to ship them out to you, I would do it. (laughs) (laughs) You send me a picture. I'll be all right. So if uh, people are interested in finding out what you're doing, uh, where can they find links to your books or to what you have coming up? Well, um, I'm on uh, Facebook, obviously, and uh, I also have uh, a blog. I I mean, I've been writing books on movies now for um, about 15 years, and I've covered all sorts of areas. My latest book is coming out to an American company called Bear Manor Media, um, Bear as in Grizzly Bear. And it's a book of interviews with horror, sci-fi, and fantasy film directors. And that's coming out hopefully um, in May this year. Lots of people in there. Nothing, no one from Hammer. It's more recent people. But I've written a book on Peter Cushing. I wrote a book about a movie called Night of the Demon also known as Curse of the Demon in the States. So I'm kind of steeped in horror, and I have been for a long time. So, um, you know, if people want to read my stuff, I'm happy. It it, it ties in with what we've been talking about. And uh, I think they get a lot out of certainly the interview book that's coming up. But my anyway, my website, my blog, is www.anthonyearnshaw.com dot wordpress dot com so a n t o n y earnshaw e a r n s h a w dot wordpress dot com
Well, great. Well, again, thank you very much. And I wish you lived closer so we could serve you some chocolate brains and have you introduce one of our films. <laughs> it, it would be a thrill. But um, good luck with it. And um, I hope that the audiences buy into what you're doing and I hope they appreciate the program. Thanks for listening to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Next week, I speak with Atticus Ross of Nine Inch Nails about composing music for Triple Nine. I'll also have a preview of the upcoming TCM series Condemned about films condemned by the Catholic Church from the 1930s through 1980. To get my latest episode or to search through the archives, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to kpbs.org slash junkiepodcast. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.